In his last words, David identifies himself as the sweet psalmist and the anointed of the Lord. This is the 51st sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel as we resume our exposition of the prophet. Roll covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 23. 2 Samuel and chapter 23, the first two verses only, verses 1 and 2. Beloved of the Lord, this is God's word unto us this morning by inspiration of God, the prophet writes. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Paul writing to Timothy, Second Timothy in chapter 3, two verses only, 16 and 17, the final verses of the chapter. Second Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this morning. Now here we have what I believe is actually the final chapter of 2 Samuel, which begins by identifying David's last installment of his life. Notice, these are the last words of David. The scripture here clearly identifies these as his actual last words. Note the first verse. These are, now these are the last words of David. Very clear, very simple. And so there should be no mistake. David is now going to end his incredible life with the following declaration. David has already reflected on the manifold blessings of God that God had bestowed upon him in his psalm of praise in chapter 22. His testimony of how God had delivered him from all of his enemies as a result of God's fidelity. And that was why God delivered him from his enemies because God was faithful and David set his hope in God. His testimony of how God had delivered him from all of his enemies as a result of that fidelity was an essential component of David's life, whereby he would give God all the praise and thanksgiving due to his glorious name and his grace and goodness. And it's in that psalm that we find provides for us a moment of pause in 2 Samuel 22, which actually is a psalm. So as we too approach, as David now is his last words, he's approaching the end of his life, reflecting upon God, we too should approach the final season of our life when for us there is no time any longer. We ought to reflect upon all the goodness of God that has brought us to that point. We ought to then reflect upon all that the Lord has done in our behalf and give thanks for all of his goodness. You know, how he walked with us through our most difficult days. So many times while we walked through the shadow of the valley of death, when we were in despair, when we were frightened, when we were discouraged, when we were betrayed, when we were doubtful, 
We should reflect upon how God walked with us and brought us out of that period of time, out of that darkness, even as David in chapter 22 in his psalm speaks about how God was so merciful to bring him out of those grave times of his life. And that's how we practice the meditation of providence, especially during the final chapter of our life. But this practice of meditation and giving thanks and and reflecting upon the waymarks of God in His providence should not only be considered when we approach the final season of life, but it should be an ongoing reflection upon all of the goodness and mercy that God continues to bestow upon us daily by the divine providential orchestration of all things. We should be cataloging those things. We should be journaling those things so that we can go back in, in time and not reflect only upon our feeble memories, how God had delivered us here and delivered us there and delivered us there and walked with us here and walked with us there. We should be writing these things down. David shows us that even in the most difficult of situations, sometimes that's where God shows himself most conspicuous. In those times, David was able to observe more clearly, more experientially and experimentally the mercy of God. He knew, as the apostle after him knew, that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. He understood the comprehensiveness of that promise that all things work together for good. The comprehensiveness of that promise and how he would have to learn from those providences, from the humbling, that he would learn how to be humbled. Because during the difficulties of our lives, we learn humiliation. We learn how to be humble. The Reverend B.L. Palmer explains, he says this, quote, It is not until we can lie prostrate upon the bosom of such a promise as this that we are relieved of our petulance and become again patient before God. Not until our faith looks up to the infinite wisdom which is able to take the things which are the most doubtful and work them as an integral part of his own great plan. Not until we can rise to the infinite power which is able to take the things which are the most stubborn and contradictory and bend them to the accomplishment of his own purpose. Not until our faith rises to the infinite goodness which comes down into the core of every sorrow and takes the sting and pain out of every grief, are we able to appreciate all the comfort that lies in a word like this. All things work together for good to them that love God. And yet there is still another lesson to be learned by this reflection. David did not only consider the providential workings of God in his life as as wonderful yet difficult as they were, He didn't just reflect upon them. He didn't just write about them. He sang about them. That was his song. Chapter 22 of 2 Samuel is actually his song. His song of praise. He's singing about the things that that God did. He published it as a song so that others could see the workings of God in his life and marvel at the goodness of God and be able to sing the same song that David sang. He was sharing his testimony with the world through a song. And we too share our testimonies with others as to how God has brought us through this trial or that trial and the many other trials so that others may find comfort and encouragement when they need it most. 
we reflect upon the comfort that God has comforted us with and we comfort others with it. We can experience the comfort of God so that we may comfort others. This is especially important for our children to be told over and over again just how God has dealt with us throughout our years so that they may learn to trust Him also. Our children especially must understand that it is through times of affliction, it's through times of sorrow and difficulty and confusion, it is during that time when we grow most. It's that time when we grow in faith and in love toward God and gratitude. Not through times of plenty or times of blessedness. Our children must understand that when God brings difficult times into our lives, it's for our growth. So now at the end of David's life, he is about to give his last testimony in what the scripture identifies as the last words of King David. Note how David is identified and why. Firstly, before David's actual words are recorded, the Holy Spirit makes sure that David's lineage is carefully recognized. Notice, now these be the last words of David, David the son of Jesse. David the son of Jesse. Obviously that was the most important beginning point before even David said anything. David is recognizing, as God himself too, the Holy Spirit is recognizing that David is the son of Jesse. This points the reader to the fact that it would be through the lineage of David, particularly, that Christ would come. This is the David, not any other David, that is in view. It is David, notice it doesn't just say David, it says David, the son of a particular man whose name is Jesse. This is the David that is in view, the son of Jesse. And so when Matthew and Luke record the lineage of Christ through both Joseph and Mary, there would be no debate as to where Christ originated from. It was from the David, the son of Jesse. This is also why for the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles, a detailed lineage of God's people is specifically laid out so that we can trace David's lineage, David, the son of Jesse's lineage, to the Christ, as was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. This is a very important point. But there is something else that this David-Jesse relationship testifies to. Think about Jesse. Who is Jesse? Who is David? There were nobodies. Jesse was nobody. He wasn't royalty. David wasn't royalty. Jesse was a man who was poor, a poor family, with no royal bloodline at all. David himself, the humblest of people, a shepherd boy, the, the eighth son of Jesse, who was sent to rot sheep. That was the most ill-regarded position in the world. That was a position that was sometimes looked down upon. You're only good enough to watch stinking sheep. Secondly, the second identifying aspect of David is that he was raised up to a height unimaginable and out of reach to any commoner, especially from an ill-regarded profession. Notice, now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high, the shepherd boy, this man, a nobody, who was raised up. Herein is the lowly shepherd raised up, the shepherd boy raised up to an unimaginable lofty position as the king of Israel. A humble shepherd boy raised up to be king. 
What an incredible testimony. And herein is the wonder that God can take a nobody and make him a king. But here's another testimony. God could take a man who would be king and because of his wickedness make him a nobody. The man who is raised up on high out of humble obscurity. The Hebrew word for raised up actually means to be established, to be confirmed, presumably by a higher authority. And this identifying aspect points right back to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom David represents. And herein, when we look to Christ, we see the babe lying in a manger, only to be raised up on high as the king of the universe. Note the scriptural description of the Lord in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Notice, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He made himself obscure. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he became obscure. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so as David was taken from a humble position to be king, so too was Christ. From a place of obscurity, born in an animal stall, lying in a feeding bin, no royal bedding, no heated castle, but swaddling clothes upon a bed of hay. From obscurity, a carpenter's son raised up to be king. Next, the scripture also records the fact that David was the anointed of God. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high and the anointed of the God of Jacob. He was the anointed of God. The Hebrew word here for anointed is actually the word Messiah. It could even read, raised up on high, the Messiah of the God of Jacob. David is likened to a savior, a deliverer, a messiah. He was ordained to be a representation of the chief Messiah who was anointed by God as king over Israel. He was the quintessential anticipation of the Christ of God. As David was king over Jerusalem, Christ is king over his church, the new Jerusalem, and the sovereign ruler over the entire world. Furthermore, in the same way that David vanquished all of his enemies for a complete dominion of the nations of his realm, so too will Christ vanquish all of the nations of the earth that rebel against him. This is the intention of Psalm 2. But this is not only the intention of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. It's the intention of most of the Psalms, particularly Psalm 89, Psalm 103, and it goes on and on and on. These are the Psalms of victory. The next point is that the scripture at this point makes a very specific addition to say that David was not only the anointed of God, but he was the anointed of the God of Jacob. Now Jacob was the elect of God, chosen instead of his brother Esau. Using Jacob as a representation of election, Paul says this in Romans chapter 9, 9, 11 and following. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, because he was the elect, but Esau have I hated, because he was passed over. 
And so whenever the scripture speaks of God as the God of Jacob, it is emphasizing that God is the God of election, the God of a sovereign electing grace by a sovereign divine will that only God can execute. David was plucked out from among all of his brothers, from all of the human race, as to be the king of Israel. Finally, David is identified as the sweet psalmist of Israel. Notice. Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who is raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Certainly he was a skilled musician. He was skilled on the Psalter. And this was the venue that God used for many of David's prophecies. And yet, as a representation of Christ, as David being the sweet psalmist of Israel, we must conclude that it is Christ who is also the sweet psalmist of Israel, but he is the divine sweet psalmist of Israel. David, the shadow. Christ, the substance. David, the anticipation. Christ, the realization. And this is what David means when he states clearly that the word of God was in his tongue. Notice, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. And so whenever David sang, which is contained in the entire book of the Psalms, in the Psalter, was inspired by God the Holy Spirit, so that when David sang the Psalms of Israel, he was singing Christ's songs. This would imply that like David, Christ sings. Like David, as the sweet psalmist, so too is Christ himself the sweet psalmist of Israel. David the shadow, Christ the substance. Whether it is his singing over his people or to his people or even to the world at large. This implies that Christ sings the songs of Zion for all to hear. It is true that these psalms are inspired. And if this is true, then the scripture should confirm that Christ himself sings over his people. You ever think about David writing the psalms and singing them, calming the the spirit of Saul when he was in disarray? Let's consider for a moment how God rejoices over his people by singing. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. God rejoices over his people, over his bride, with singing. This verse confirms the fact that God's expression of joy is manifested in singing. Note these passages of God rejoicing over his people. And while these passages do not expressly identify God as singing, it is definitely implied. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 9. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand in the fruit of thy body, in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good as he rejoiced over thy fathers. Now, if we rejoiced in Deuteronomy 30 over thee for good, and we compare that with Zephaniah 3.17, we know that he rejoices over thee with singing. 
In Isaiah 62, 5, we read this. For as a man marrieth a virgin, and you know that's speaking of Christ, marrying his church, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, how do you think he would be rejoicing over the bride? He'd be singing. He'd be singing. So shall thy God rejoice over thee. Here is Christ himself. Not only rejoicing, but he is breaking forth with a song. Consider next how God sings to his people. This is probably the easiest to prove since the entire Psalter is the songs of Christ through David. In fact, at the Passover meal, Christ leads the apostles in a psalm. The psalms are arranged into five separate books. If you ever studied the Psalms, they're arranged into five different books, totaling 150 separate Psalms. And each of the books has a theme. We have in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 the preface of the entire Psalter. But then from 3 to 41, we have the rise of David's kingship. From 42 to 72, we have the glories of the Davidic kingdom. From 73 to 89, the collapse of the Davidic kingdom. From 90 to 103, the absence of the divine kingdom. And then, from 107 to 150, the awaiting of the divine Davidic kingdom. All of these things are speaking of the history of God's people and the glory of Christ, how He will be victorious. Each of these books is thematic, All of those things, all of the things written therein, it's all for the edification of God's people. And when you read the psalm, when you sing the psalms, when you study the psalms, it's as if Christ himself is singing to us. He's singing to you. He's singing to me. And then we, as we rejoice that he is singing over us, we respond by singing back to him. And this is why the Psalms are called the Songs of Zion, the Songs of the Parched People, the Songs of the People of God. They are the songs of both Christ and His body, and they are given to us as our songs that we are to sing in worship to Him as we rejoice over His electing love toward us. So He rejoices over us, and we rejoice over Him. He rejoices over us by singing His Psalms. We rejoice back unto Him by singing the Psalms. These are teaching psalms as well as comforting psalms. They're they're not depressing psalms. They're psalms of education. They're psalms of instruction. They're psalms of comfort. They're psalms of instruction. But they're also the psalms of conquest and the psalms of victory. The practice of what is known today as exclusive psalmody, whereby during a worship ceremony, the psalms are sung exclusively, embraces the example of Christ, who sings to his people so that they might emulate his rejoicing songs as a result of his electing grace in hope of a total and comprehensive victory over the enemies of the gospel. That's why we sing the psalms. This is why Paul counsels the churches to sing from the Psalter when worshiping God. And while he uses terms like hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, each of those identifying phrases are variations of the different types of psalms in the five books of the Psalter. If you read very carefully the title of the psalms, they are all inspired A man did not write them in. So in Psalm 30, you have a song 
or a psalm. In fact, it says it's a psalm song, literally. We find the same thing in Psalm 45. It's called the Song of Loves. Verse 46, 48 of the Psalms in Psalm 46 and 48, again, identifying that psalm as a song. In Psalm 67, it's a psalm song. And in Psalm 68, it's a psalm song. We see this in Psalm 83, 92. And from 121 through 134, every one of those psalms is called a song. In Matthew 26.30 and Mark 14.26, we find Christ going out after the Passover, just before leaving, singing a hymn. That hymn was a psalm. And it's taken from what is known as the Halil. It's a song of praise. It's a song of victory. And it comes from Psalm 113 through 118. That is called the Halil. And wouldn't it not be fitting for Christ just before he goes to the cross, because that cross was the cross of victory. Would it not be fitting for Christ to sing of the Hillel, the Psalms of victory, just before he attained victory? Of course it would. Notice what Paul says as he admonishes the churches. Wherefore, chapter 5 of Ephesians 17 and following, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in the Psalter, is basically what he's saying. In Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But notice he prefaces this by saying, don't be unwise. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Sing the Psalms, sing the hymns, sing the spiritual songs. Making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for the, all things unto God and to the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. To the church at Colossae, he gives the same instruction. In Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The word of Christ. Where do you find the word of Christ? In the Psalms, in the scripture. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now consider how the preaching of the gospel is itself likened to a song. You know, you don't think about it. When you preach the gospel, when you are apologizing, you giving your apologetical debate for the gospel, that is likened to a song. That's like a song. In Ezekiel 33... The prophet preaches a sermon that God identifies as a lovely song. And when it is heard by the people, they acknowledge it as a very lovely song. They even title it a very lovely song. Oh, pastor, that sermon was a very lovely song. And yet these particular people that Ezekiel is speaking of have actually disregarded the message that the song of the gospel was relating to them, admonishing them. Because that gospel presentation, that song of Zion, was admonishing them. It was exhorting them. And it was, in fact, warning them. And yet, they paid no mind to it. Notice Ezekiel 33, 30 and following. Also, thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses. And speak to one another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh. 
and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art to them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. And when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come, then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. So the preaching of the gospel is also likened to a very lovely song. Like his father before him, Solomon too, another representation of Christ, was proficient in writing songs. You don't think about Solomon as a musician, or as a psalter man. But in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 and following, we read this, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, exceeding much, and largeness of heart, even as the sand is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, who was a musician, and Heman, and Cahal, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all nations round about. Notice. And he spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Note how the songs of Zion were sung, not only for comfort in times of distress, but explicitly for instruction by those that were instructed in them. Notice 1 Chronicles 25, verse 7. So the number of them with their brethren that were instructed in the songs of the Lord, where would that come from? From the Psalter. The songs of the Lord were contained in the Psalter. They were instructed by the Psalter. That's why we read and sing the Psalms that were instructed in the songs of the Lord. Even all that were cunning was 200, fourscore, and eight. Now, what is interesting about the songs of Zion is that they were given as a gift to the people of God. Why would God put in the Bible, smack in the middle of the Bible, a songbook so that we can disregard the songbook? and sing the songs of men. So this is a gift given to the people of God so that through the singing of the psalms, they might reflect upon God's deliverance and praise Him for it. And so whenever we sing the songs of Zion, we are to reflect upon what they are saying to us. But when the people of God rebel, when there is apostasy afoot, God removes the songs of Zion from them so that the only songs heard in the worship are likened to the howling of animals. You think about this. Man's songs are likened to the howling of animals. Secular songs that want to be passed for divine psalms and songs and hymns are likened to howlings. This is the intent of the Hebrew wording of Amos chapter 8. Notice 8, 1 and following. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place, 
they shall cast them forth with silence. Howlings. If you ever been to churches in the past, the repetitious songs without instruction, without meaning, without warning, without comfort, without admonition. So instead of encompassing his people with songs of deliverance, when there's apostasy and rebellion afoot, the people feed on the songs of humanism, which becomes a curse and a judgment. The songs of Zion's glory are taken from them as a punishment from the Almighty. In Psalm 32, David identifies God's songs, praises and deliverances. Notice, he praises that deliverance. Notice what he says in 32.7 of the Psalms. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. So what I usually tell people that are just starting out in the Christian faith or they want some sort of devotional structure, I tell them in the evening, in the evening, read the Psalms. They are the Psalms. They are the songs. They are the hymns of deliverance. They are the songs of comfort. Now note how David attaches to the Psalms the law of God. He attaches the law of God to the songs of Zion in Psalm 119, verse 54. Notice, 119.54. Thy statues have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Thy statutes, the law of God, is my song. Now one might conclude then that whenever the Psalms of God are removed from the worship ceremony, it is a testimony that the law of God is no longer a central focal point of the Christian life. And you think about all the churches that refuse to sing the Psalms, where are they with the law of God? Oh, there's no law but love. For David, the ethical standards of divine law gave him his personal stability during his pilgrimage on the earth. And that should be our testimony as well. But to deny the counsel of the law is to deny God. Therefore, to refrain from singing the songs of Zion can be likened to a denial of God's instructional songbook as if we know better. Now, esteemed theologian and writer G.I. Williamson has this to say about exclusive psalmody. And if you know anything about G.I. Williamson, he's pretty much the guru of Reformed theology. He's, he's the all-wise Yoda. Notice what he says. No one has yet found even a single scripture text to prove that God commands his church to sing other than the Psalms of the Bible in worship. And it is not because men have not searched diligently, exclamation point. A few years ago, a committee of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church made such a search. This committee had a majority in favor of the use of uninspired hymns in worship. And yet, after an exhaustive search through Scripture, requiring a number of years to complete, such proof could not be found. The committee chairman admitted that it is, quote, impossible to prove that uninspired songs are authorized in Scripture. He even said that, quote, to demand such proof before one can in good conscience sing uninspired songs is to demand the impossible Exclamation point. One of the most common arguments advanced by those who favor the use of uninspired songs in divine worship is that under the New Testament, we have a greater measure of liberty as regards to the content of worship than was true under the Old Testament. Such a statement sounds innocent enough, but is such a statement true? Is it not rather 
that under the New Testament, as under the Old, God may not be worshipped in any other way than He has commanded in His Word? It may seem strange to say it, but far from being liberty, this is really tyranny, and it is tyranny of the worst sort. End quote. In his work, A Short and Full Vindication of that sweet and comfortable ordinance of singing the Psalms, the Reverend Jonathan Clapham, 1611-1676, through 1676, stated plainly this, quote, Singing the Psalms was never repealed under the Gospel, nor were they a type as the ceremonies were to cease. Singing the Psalms are forever among moral and perpetual duties, end quote. Moral and perpetual duties. The Puritan, the Reverend Thomas Ford, and the Reverend Cotton Mather, both wrote on the duty of the Christians to sing the Psalms exclusively in worship. Over and over again, these men were advancing exclusive psalmody. The modern church's problem is that they have failed to study both scripture and history to find out exactly how God wants them to worship Him. They have denied the Lord's admonition to seek the old past where the good way is and walk therein. David's songbook, the five books of the Psalms, is the inspired songbook for worship, written by David, by Moses, by Asaph and others, so that both the head and the body Christ and his saints can sing in harmony together this instructional book, this book of rejoicing, this book of instruction and admonition and comfort. Reformed theologians of the Reformation and the Puritan era believed that the Psalms were to be sung as one of the commanded ordinances of God. These scripturally astute men were so convinced that the Psalms were the only valid songbook for Christian worship that they believed that no introduction of Any man-made song was valid. And to introduce any man-made song into the worship ceremony, they believed was idolatry. They called it the vain imaginations of sinful men. Men such as Samuel Willard, Jonathan Dickinson, Joshua Moody, Nathan Stone, and the notable Jonathan Edwards. And so, with his last words, declaring David's last thoughts to his people, as a sweet inspired psalmist of Israel, he bids his people farewell, but not without speaking once again on a most important matter, the governance of man. We shall consider that next when we continue in our exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.